One of the best facelifts in Europe in recent years is the town of Bilbao in the Basque country of Spain. It was one of the ugliest cities in Spain. But suddenly, the magic of Guggenheim Museum put a spark in the city and has changed. Now you have Bilbao as a beautiful city, modern, with a shocking museum. A guide to Basque Country shares highlights of his proud corner of Spain coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves. And for families vacationing in Hungary, Lake Balaton has long been a favorite place for fresh air and relaxation. I would definitely recommend you to take a nice long cruise on the Lake Balaton with a beautiful uh, fish dish on board and, of course, a nice light white wine. Go to the wine cellars. It's an awesome experience. There's a thermal spa. You go biking. You help them do the wine harvest. Friends from Hungary share tips for the quintessential Hungarian country getaway as an antidote to the typically busy American vacation. Enjoy the countryside like an insider in Hungary and the Basque Country. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. When planning a trip to Europe, if you're like most people, you focus on the big, famous cities you fly in and out of. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're looking at some of the smaller towns and rural areas you may not know much about, but that reward visitors with a distinctive culture, great food, lots of photo ops, and travel fun. Coming up, a guide from the Basque country offers tips for enjoying that distinctive corner of Spain and France. And we'll check in with listeners making plans for family getaways in the U.K. and Ireland. First, let's meet two guides from Hungary, Esther Bokros and Peter Poltzman. They're here to help us plan the perfect Hungarian family vacation. We're at 877-333-7425. Esther and Peter, thanks for being here. Hi. Hello. You're very welcome. How do you say hello? You're very welcome in Hungarian. Szia. Nagyon szívesen. We're talking about Hungary going outside of Budapest. If you want to think about the best of the countryside, what would you recommend that Americans be sure to check out, Peter? I've got two favorites. One is where I'm born. That's the Danube Bend. That's the, the closest to Budapest. I'm not saying that's the most exciting, though, but that's the closest. So that offers the first opportunity to see something interesting. To the north of Budapest, there's two hills that force the Danube to take a sharp turn. And there's three cities over there. Uh, there's a small artist uh, village called St. Andrews. And the band continues towards uh, Visegrad, which um, has a medieval castle there. And then uh, you come to the country's uh, first capital, which is more of an ecclesiastical center. But if you ask me which one is the most interesting and my favorite, I would go for Page, which mm. is in the southern part of the country. It's a town with a Mediterranean feel, lots of interesting tiles over there, um, artists. So it's just really at the crossroads of Hungarian, Austro-Hungarian culture with a pinch of Balkan there. Pech. So it's a good example. This is a crossroads of Europe, and in Pech you can feel that. Pech, P-E-C-S, like Pex. Okay, so we'll get back to this later, but you're recommending the Danube Bend, the three important historic places on the Danube Bend, and the town south of Budapest a couple of hours, Pech. Correct. Esther, what would you recommend? I would definitely recommend the third largest lake in Europe, Lake Balaton in mm-hmm. Hungary. Yep. It's just an hour and a half drive from Budapest, so it's not really far. And it can be a good region for several activities. You can bike around the lake, you can sail on the lake, and you can see historical places around the lake. And if you're a wine lover, you will find a huge variety, especially on the north side of the lake. It is one of the most famous wine regions of Hungary. Okay, so when you're thinking about wine, I always think Hungarian wine is big red wine. Is that what we're talking about in Balaton? Not exactly. No. It's more home for uh, light white wine. Light wine. Okay, so we have the bull's blood wine, right, further east? That's true. Eger, Eger is for Bull's blood, and that's to the east of Budapest. And then Pech, if we talk about Pech again, yeah. <laughs> again and again, uh, to the south of Pech, there's, uh, I think, the country's best wine region, Villagne. And how would you characterize that one? It's, uh, it's actually on the same latitude with Bordeaux. Okay. So it's it's half Mediterranean, and then that's where the full-bodied reds are. So you get a big, so, like a big Bordeaux. Yeah. You would get a Hungarian Bordeaux, and yeah. that's in the area south of Pech. Sure enough, yeah. Okay. Southern Esther, we're talking about Lake Balaton, the third largest lake in Europe. That's right. And I know during communist times, Hungarians couldn't travel very far, or it was difficult to travel, and that was everybody would go to Lake Balaton. So it Absolutely. Has a, it has a history of being the place to go for a beach resort. Absolutely. It was called uh, in the country the Hungarian Sea. The Hungarian Sea. Since it's uh, 76 kilometers long, which is about 50 miles. 50 miles long. That's yes, quite a sea. It's quite a sea. <laughs> and the uh, south part is really shallow, so if someone is not really an advanced swimmer, it's absolutely fine. And then in the north part, that's more for sailors. Okay. Now, when I think of uh, this Lake Balaton, I think of families on vacation and, and traditional sort of vacations. If you think back to your childhood, what are your favorite memories in the countryside of Hungary when you would go with your family to be on a vacation? 
we would definitely go for Balaton. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, I come from the north part of Hungary, not very far from Eger, actually, uh-huh. from the mountainous regions. So we would go for a nice, uh, small, quiet place in the mountains. And what would you do there? Hiking, uh-huh. definitely. Collecting mushrooms. I was going to say foraging. I had friends in Bulgaria and we used to do that. Definitely, that's a good so idea. So foraging mushrooms in yeah. the mountains north of Eger, okay. And there are really beautiful hiking trails where you have fantastic panorama. Is there any uh, park that you would recommend today for hiking in Hungary? I could recommend a really beautiful park um, nearby Eger. That's uh, one of the national parks of Hungary. Uh-huh. And you can see beautiful cascading waterfalls there. Mm-hmm. You can see uh, the Hungarian Lipitzaner uh, horses. Okay, so there's Lipitzaner horses in the northeast of Hungary? Yes, absolutely. What is that place called? It's called Silvashvárod. Okay. It's uh, nearby Eger. They are very, very famous, and you can go horse riding. Because the Lipizzaner horses I was thinking of were in Slovenia. Yeah, the town of Lipica is in Slovenia, but now that the Austro-Hungarian monarchy broke up, the Austrian Lipizzaners are uh, bred in Graz, in the city of Graz. So what you see in Vienna, that's from Graz. There's Lipizzaners in the town of Lipica as well, and on top of that, there's Lipizzaners in Hungary. I'm confused. There's three Lipizzaner... Like uh, back in the old days, right? strange. So you're going to say not just Lipizzaner stallions, but if you're really into it, you go, are these the Hungarian Lipizzaners? Sure enough. The Slovenian or the Austrian at Graz? I don't think the Hungarians would forget to mention that these are Hungarian Lipizzaners. Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) There's a little bit of pride there for the great horses. Because Hungary was part of the Habsburg Empire. It was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You were the co-pilots of that empire. Sure enough, yeah. A lot of things go back there. Um, Coffeehouse culture and... Uh, palaces. Talk about palaces. Uh, Habsburg palaces in the countryside of Hungary. What would you see? Actually, all the, all the palaces imitate Versailles, just mm-hmm. like, um, you know, some of the palaces in, uh, in Austria as well. But uh, probably one of the most exciting is uh, close to uh, Budapest. Mm-hmm. If you go outside, uh, 45 minutes would take you to Gödöllő, which was the summer palace uh, for the Habsburgs. Sissi, the, uh, the wife of Franz Joseph, actually spent more time over there than in Vienna. She, uh-huh. didn't, she didn't like Vienna at all. She hated the mother-in-law, first of all, and then she spent more time out there. Uh, Franz Joseph liked it too, so uh, they used to go out there. And then uh, the Esterházys had a big palace as well. The Esterházy family was like the Rothschild family, so they had okay. lots of lands and, and stuff. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Hungary right now with two Hungarian friends, Esther Bokros and Peter Poltzman. Peter, we heard about Esther's childhood memories. What are your childhood memories in the countryside to have a good traditional Hungarian uh, family vacation? Well, my family was probably poorer because we could not afford to uh, go to Lake Balaton. I've got one memory, though, with Lake Balaton because I, the Communist Party built a whole town for kids. And then I spent two weeks over there as a pioneer. You were a communist pioneer. I was a communist pioneer. I almost cried my eyes out when I had to leave the camp. So I was a happy communist pioneer over there for two weeks. Honestly, that was my first vacation, long vacation away from family. And I cried my eyes out. And I can see that Esther cried her eyes out as well. So. You enjoyed it? <laughs> you enjoyed yes, it? that that camp was uh, absolutely high heaven for kids because it had a lot more than uh, regular schools or regular <laughs> kids. I even spent three weeks during school year there. That was a big privilege and a big prize for for good students. Now, you guys must have been young during the... I mean, communist finished in 1990, right? Or 1989. 89. So this is 23 years ago, something like that. Yeah, this is like 80, 85. Okay, so, so you were you were mm-hmm. kids going to the, you know, the equivalent of Girl Scout or Boy Scout summer sure camp. Enough. I can't believe how both of you lit up when you remember your communist summer school <laughs> days. So tell me, what, what was so great about it, Esther, going to communist summer camp? Did they bribe you to be happy to be, to be indoctrinated? No, no, they didn't. Well, in fact, in a way, they bribed because of the so many activities you could try, what you could never oh, okay. try. So it was just full of opportunities to full have of opportunities. summer memories, riding horses. Uh... Yes, things like that, or uh, pottery, excursions, sailing. And when you had to go back to your dreary family, you cried. I probably was crying because uh, of joy to see them, but I was crying because I knew that this is not going to happen very often. So this is a special time. Absolutely. Peter, what are your memories of communist I summer l- camp in I Hungary? fell in love for the first time over there. That, and that was my reason for crying, I oh, think. Oh, okay. But, um, was that allowed at a communist summer camp? Uh, crying, you mean? Or no, falling, falling in love? In love. Oh, sure enough. <laughs> <laughs> we spent half the night outside. <laughs> you know, because they, uh, they appointed um, guards for the camp, and, and these, were, these were guys everywhere. One wanted to be a guard for the night because then you, you can stay outside, meet the girls as well. So <laughs> awesome. It was awesome. They woke us up, though. Uh, at six o'clock, I remember that we had to wake up and then we had to. That was this compulsory half an hour running around the camp. A bit of a military practice. If you. Um, so 
there was that focus that. on physical uh, being fit. Yeah, yeah. You want to you, you want to prepare yourself for you know what what's going to come. But but it was awesome. I remember, and it was only for the best for the best students. I mean, this was a privilege oh, was a, was to, a go privilege to go there. It's it's not a prison camp, mind you. Right. So um so it was an <laughs> it was a beautiful time. Very interesting. Eighty five. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're, we're reminiscing about communist summer camp back in the 80s in Hungary. It was a good time. It was a good time. You know, when you think about it today, is Hungary happy to be capitalist? In a way, probably yes. And in a way, what? In a way, it's a big struggle at the moment in the country. Really? That's interesting. So what is the nostalgia about the, is there any good old days feelings about communism? Some people would definitely, older generations would definitely have some good feelings about uh, communism because prices were low. Mm-hmm. Everybody was, had a job. There everybody was, had a retirement. Everybody had a retirement. There was free health care, free medication. What do you think, Peter? Is there nostalgia today? or Who's happy about the contemporary economic situation and, and who wishes it was the old way? Okay, probably I'm the first generation who enjoys the benefits of the new world uh, because, uh, you know, we get the older job opportunities, we speak languages, we know how to work with computers, the old guys don't. So the older generation, your parents' generation was the one that was sort of... They lost uh, quite a lot, quite a lot over there, especially, uh, you know, for the last 15, uh, 20 years, they were out of jobs. So, you know, you don't get a pension if you don't have a job for 15 years. It's a sad years. thing, but it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a new beginning for Hungary now. Sure and we all are hoping for the best for the, for the former Warsaw Pact countries. Mark's on the phone in Albany, California. Mark, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. Do you have a comment or a question for Peter or Esther? Uh, well, last spring, um, I was in Budapest for several days uh, by myself. I was thinking that maybe next time I'd uh, bring the family over, and we'd like to uh, possibly stay out in the country and uh, wondered if Hungary had uh, farm stays, uh, similar to what Italy might have with its uh, agriturismos. Esther, do you know anything about the staying in a farm or, or a bed and breakfast in the countryside? It is possible. It depends uh, also what kind of region uh, the traveler would like to prefer, if it's the Great Plan or if it's a mountainous area or a slightly hilly area. It's possible. It's not that common, but if you look on the web, it's possible to find places. Uh, what I would recommend, uh, go to the wine cellars. It's an awesome experience. I know a couple who run a wine cellar close to Eger. It's in Eger Salok. I actually go there uh, very regularly. They've got 10 rooms right across the street. There's a thermal spa. Uh, you mm. go biking. You help them You know, uh, do the wine harvest. That's, a, that's Whoa, an awesome you got experience. a family experience, you got a spa, you got biking, sure and you got wine. And then uh, if you go down to the Great Plains, and uh, as Esther said, then uh, you can go horseback riding you know, in the middle of nowhere. Um, you stay mm-hmm. in, a, in a big um, house, probably with the family, and then you can go horseback riding. There's wine all the time, everywhere. There's 22 wine regions, so you will always find a family in the vineyard, and then, you know, room and board. That's a good way to connect with the uh, salt-of-the-earth sort of farm community. Good luck, Mark. Great. Uh, thanks a lot, Rick. Appreciate yeah. it. Happy travels. Thank you. More on family vacation options for Hungary just ahead. And coming up, an insider's guide to the Basque country in Spain and France. 877-333-7425. That's our number at Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I am Parini Beretzetelko. I am from Hungary. I'm going to tell you a Hungarian tongue twister. Réparetek mogyorú, korá reggel ritka rikkant arigó. In English, carrots, radishes, peanuts, early morning, quail seldom chirps. In Hungarian again, réparetek mogyorú, korán reggel ritka rikkant arigó.
That was good. Thank uh. you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Hungary with Esther Bukros and Peter Poltzman, who visit us right now from... Do you both live in Budapest? Yes, we do. The great capital city of Hungary. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Elaine's on the phone in Orlando, Florida. Elaine, thanks for the call. You're most welcome. Hi, Rick. Hi, Elaine. Do you have a thought for uh, Peter or Esther? Oh, I'm enjoying the conversation, and Peter talking about visiting uh, Esterhazy Palace just outside of Chopron. Absolutely beautiful. I, I just love visiting that area, and I think Hungary has a lot to offer that people don't realize that there's so much to see and do in that country. Are you Hungarian You're in your family? Yes. my Both of my grandparents came from Hungary, and so my family, there were 12 of us that went back to Hungary just a few years ago and traveled around and uh, visited the Lake Balaton area, which was just spectacular, and down towards the plains in Kekshkemet, and of course we visited Budapest. But I think getting outside the big city and touring around and, and enjoying the countryside and the people and the, the culture and the cuisine was just spectacular. Did you make any so, attempt to track your family roots? Yes, we did. And in fact, we traced our family roots all the way back to a little town called Chopron Horpach, which is just south of the city of Chopron over by the uh, Austrian border. And it's it's only like an hour's drive from Vienna, and there you are in this beautiful, very rural uh, little area of Hungary. Now, how would a Hungarian-American family go back to the old country and trace their family roots? What did you do to prepare, and, and how did you put things together when you got there? We uh, worked with a travel agent and hired a van and a driver, and we also had a young college student that we had come along with us that served as a translator so that we could get out in the countryside and really experience things. And uh, so for a week, we traveled around the country and had no problems. It was nice to have Andras and some others to help us with the Hungarian language. But uh, we visited towns. We had a three-ring binder with photos of some old family pictures, and we were able to kind of map them up to today. And here we were standing in the same crossroads. It was, it was spectacular. Did you actually connect with distant relatives who didn't know you before? Yes, we did, and that was quite an experience. Tell uh, us about that. Outside, outside of Budapest, near the um, UNESCO village of, I think it's Holoko, one side of my family comes from that area, and we ran into this little village, and they were all, like, waiting for this van of, of this family to arrive from America and greeted us with open arms and gifts, and we exchanged, you know, photos and, and presents and things of that nature and then walked around the old churchyard because so much of history comes from looking at the tombstones and gathering records from the church, you know, the mostly the church records and things of that nature. So it was really neat for particularly my little niece, who was five years old at the time, as well as my father, who was around 70 at the time. So it was just a, a beautiful, wonderful family experience. It must have been great for your father at age 70 to go back to the old country and connect with people and go to the village where his relatives came from. Yes, it was a beautiful experience, and particularly beautiful and easy to get around in the country. And um, like I said, in every village we went to, people were very hospitable and having the time to dip our toes into the Lake Balaton, which was very cold even in the summer, and you know, sample the wines in Eger. And right. we even spent the night in Atanya, which was just a wonderful experience. Elaine, that's quite a bit of gumption for your family to actually put this all together and go back to Hungary and hire a guide with a car and go to these villages so far from the big city and everything. I would imagine some of our listeners are listening in thinking, boy, I don't know if we could do that. What advice would you give a Hungarian-American family that really was reluctant but, but would like to go back there and, and find their roots? I think you would do some of the basics to go to if you know the basic area where your family may be from. And in my case, it's outside Budapest, and then the other city is Chopron. I was in Vienna on a conference, went across the border into Chopron, and then just rented a car from... a major rental car agency, and you can drive over there as long as you have a, a legal driver's license, and some of it is just kind of exploring and getting off the beaten path and turning over stones and just kind of finding your way. What did you pay per day for your guide and translator? Um, I believe we paid as if he was just another member of the family, so we had to pay for his lodging and his meals, so he was just, you know, a, a 13th person when we were factoring our costs. So he had his own room, and he had his, we were paying for his meals, and I think it was a little extra for him. Peter and uh, Esther, any thoughts on, on somebody who's listening in, thinking about visiting their, their family roots? 
Um, I agree with the, Elaine. It's actually relatively easy to do it. The records are there. Um, it's a microfilm, so you can actually find that here in the States. So uh, you can do the basics here, and then, yes, go back, get more, a card. More fun to go over there and get a big hug from long-lost yeah, relatives. Sure enough. Sure enough. <laughs> and you at least, you know, see a tombstone or... You know, now, you relatives. guys are both guides. I, I, I'm surprised Elaine could get one that would do this for room and board. What that's, would, cheap. that's a good deal, that's a good deal. <laughs> What would you recommend? I mean, are there young guides who would be available, you know, just to hire for four days to go and be your escort this way? I do it. You so, do it, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've done it a lot of times. Uh, you can cover it like one day. Normally, would the tourist drive and you would just go along or would you drive? Um, I drive. I translate. I talk to the local priest. Uh, we go out to the cemetery, uh, talk to the relatives. I've done it a few times and so it's well, really, really exciting. You, and uh-huh. you're not a, a cheap guide because you're one of the best and most experienced <laughs> in the country. I am cheap, Elaine. Don't, you're cheap. <laughs> well, don't believe that. What, what would uh, You wouldn't do it for room and board. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Uh, what, what would it cost to hire but, a, a guide like you for the day? I, I do 180 euros and that, that includes gas, that includes uh, a highway sticker that includes translation with and everything. With your car? Yeah, with my car. With so, your services and your car, $250 yeah. a day. If you had yeah. a family, that is a sweet deal. And in fact, if you're taking a family over to Hungary and you're trying to do it on your own, that's a good example of Pennywise and Pound Foolish if you think of four people sharing the services of yeah. one guide. For is that Doesn't that make sense to you, Elaine? Oh, it does. Elaine, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. And Diane is calling us from Ashland, Oregon. Hi. You bet. Uh, we are just beginning to plan our trip to uh, Hungary, and um, we do not drive anymore. So we're interested in public uh, transportation for day trips. That's a good question. So you're going to try to base in, in Budapest and then day trip into the countryside? That's right. What would you recommend, Esther? I would definitely recommend what Peter already mentioned. It's quite easy to go to the Danube Bend from Budapest. You ah, can yeah. take a suburban railway to Santander to St. Andrews from Budapest. That's only 45 minutes. That's easy enough. Or uh, you can even take a boat up to Visegrad to the Danube Bend from Budapest, which is also nice because then you see the whole panorama on the way up. And if you want to get to Eger or Pech, I would imagine there are train connections or bus connections. There are connections. train or bus connections, both. So no problem there, Diane. Okay, that sounds wonderful. Thank you for your suggestions. Yeah, have fun in Hungary. I will. Thank you All very right. much. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Peter Poltzman and Esther Bokros. Peter, you mentioned the Danube Ben, and you've got these three cities. There's Visegrad. I always had a confusion with the word Sentendra or whatever. It's St. Andrew. Yes. In Hungarian. How do you say it in Hungarian? In Hungarian, that would be Sentendra. Sentendra. And then Estragon, which is famous for the, the church kind of capital church, of the country. Yeah. So all of those are very close to the city. You've got an artist community, very artsy, lots of cute little galleries and shops. You've got a historic castle where you can feel the, the long history of the country. And you've got uh, the most important church in the country. Last time I was there, I saw a beautiful opportunity just to see local weddings. The bride and the groom getting their picture taken in front of the river, and it was just beautiful. It's easy to list all the famous sites and obvious things to do, but to really connect with the the culture is a challenge, especially in a country like Hungary, where we don't have a lot of famous leaning towers and Michelangelo's that we can relate to. So if a traveler, Esther, is going to Hungary and they want to get a memorable experience in in a very intimate countryside way, what would you recommend? I would definitely recommend you to take a nice long cruise on the Lake Balaton with a beautiful uh, fish dish on board and, of course, a nice light white wine to go with it. So they have uh, vacation boats that will take you for the evening, the sun's going Absolutely. down. Absolutely. Some white fish and white wine. Absolutely. Oh, Lake Balaton. Peter. Okay, if you're not into this whole romantic thing, then... then Kick yourself and, and make things happen. Uh, I would recommend to cook your own goulash because you cannot go wrong. Um, you just buy some paprika, go to the local market, uh, local farmer's market in the morning, pick up the local uh, you know, veggies, fruit. Uh, goulash is basically uh, cubes of meat with, uh, with potato. You put it in, uh, you put some onions in there, and then you cook it for a while. Of course, you know, not in this order, but you can get the recipe from the internet in the meantime. And then... Just make it. Two hours and the deal's done. And then you'll be happy by the end of the day. So actually go into the market and uh, put together the ingredients for the uh, quintessential Hungarian dish. But, you know, goulash doesn't have a fixed recipe. So it, it was always a poor man's soup or a poor man's stew. So whatever it turns out is good. So you can say this is a fine Hungarian goulash. Sure enough. Well, this is a fine opportunity to, to sort of imagine the fun we can have in the countryside of, of Hungary. Peter Poltzman, Esther Bokros. How do you say thank you in Hungarian? Kusanam. Kusanam. 
Kosenom, Peter. Kosenom, Master. Sivashen. We'll learn about Basque Country in Spain and France in just a few minutes. But first, let's check in with some listeners who've contacted us recently at Travel with Rick Steves to see what kinds of family vacation plans they're working on. We're at 877-333-RICK. Andrea's on the line in Laramie, Wyoming. Andrea, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you? Great. You have some thoughts about travel? Yeah, um, my mom and I are going to England this fall. It's my sixth trip over and her second. We'd like to go to Liverpool for a day because her grandparents sailed out of Liverpool to the U.S. when they came from Norway, and we're wondering about the maritime history and you know, checking out the docks there. We know what ship they sailed on and when they sailed, and it would be kind of neat to be able to see the area where they sailed out of. I would say you've got great timing, Andrea, because Liverpool has really had sort of a rejuvenation in the last decade. In previous years, you know, people just went there for the Beatles connection, and right. uh, it had a reputation of just being kind of a rundown industrial city. But the city is an amazing transformation. They've uh, rejuvenated the old Docklands. It's a thriving people's okay. zone now. The core of the city is is a sprawling shopping mall where you just feel a, a great energy. You can still take tours and see the Beatles sites. I love to see Penny Lane and Strawberry Field and all that. But what you've got now is a couple of great new museums. One of them is the brand-new Museum of Liverpool. And this okay. just opened along the riverfront uh, in a state-of-the-art facility. It has exhibits about the history of the city, and that includes its role as an immigrant launch pad. So many people oh, from good. Ireland uh, during tough times came over to Liverpool, and so many uh, English workers, hoping for new promise and new opportunities, left the old world for the promise of America from Liverpool, and it's a fascinating museum there. There's also another museum, which is the Merseyside Maritime Museum. It's nearby, and it's got another good exhibit about immigration and a very thought-provoking and honest exhibit about Liverpool's role as as a sort of a kingpin in the slave trade. I didn't realize this until I went there, but Liverpool was really a mover and a shaker in that whole ugly chapter in European and American history. So when you're in Liverpool, be sure to, you know, enjoy the new uh, gentrified people's zone. There's all sorts of thriving pubs and nightlife scenes, some great new restaurants, and you've got those two great museums, the Museum of Liverpool and the Merseyside Maritime Museum. All right, we'll be sure to check those out then. All right. Thanks for your call. Have a good time. Bye. Take care. Deborah's on the line in Marietta, Georgia. Deborah, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you? Doing well. Well, um, I have three young kids. The oldest one is seven. And um, I'd like to kind of have a, a, a more rural, rustic experience. And, and Ireland popped into my mind just because um, it's temperate. It's not overly hot. Right. And it would be nice to have some sort of like a coastal little town that we could stay in. Okay. So I I wondered if you had any thoughts on where what might be some good... Oh, you know, I just love the thought of taking a family trip to Ireland with... uh, How old are your kids? Three months, three years, and seven years. Oh, that's younger than what I was thinking. So, um, let's see. It's going to be kind of like camping. You're going to want to have your own car, a big car. Mm -hmm. Not that you'd camp. You'd probably stay in Mm B&Bs. But you're going to be doing, you know, lots of outdoors kind of stuff. And uh, you really want your own mobility in Ireland. The public transportation is pretty frustrating. And the people are wonderful. Uh, the driving is scenic. The roads are small. And I'm just the biggest fan of the west coast of Ireland. There's all these famous peninsulas, most famously the Ring of Kerry and Dingle Peninsula. Children are welcome in the pubs. We took our kids there when they were your kids' age. You know, you hang out in the pub. It's the neighborhood living room. And you get to know local families. And that's quite nice. Yeah, I would love that. I mean, anything popping into your mind as far as great beach, beachy towns? I don't mean like lay out in the sun beach, but exploring rocks and craggy and tide pools and things like that? Yeah, there's a place called Inch, like uh, 12 inches and a foot, and it's on the south part of Dingle Peninsula. And you'll see families out there digging in the sand. You'll see horses galloping on the beach. You've got uh, beautiful ruined castles nearby. That might be worth checking out. You know, the Dingle Peninsula, to me, is my favorite part of Ireland, with or without kids. Uh, It's a very kid-friendly place. Sparse population, no language barrier, and just people that would love to meet your family. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Kari's on the phone in St. Paul, Virginia. Kari, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Hi, Rick. How are you? Doing well, thanks. 
Quick question. We are planning to take my mother-in-law on a trip to the U.K., which she's wanted to do throughout her whole life. We've both been overseas several times, so we're confident. She has early-onset dementia and Alzheimer's. She's oriented to where she is and who she's talking to. That's no problem. She's in good health otherwise. But we just want to get some ideas of how to make the trip memorable and exciting for her. Well, I'd say, first of all, Carrie, it's great you're, you're having an opportunity to do this. The British Isles are a perfect place to go when you consider there's no language barrier. Uh, they're very well organized for smooth travel compared to places uh, on the continent. And I think you'll find very friendly and understanding locals. I find in England they have a real gift for putting people at ease. One thing is, uh, you know, in Britain, people are out and about with senior citizens and people who have uh, Alzheimer's or, or whatever, and you'll find that there's not quite the stigma you might find in the United States and in other countries, and people are comfortable in that regard. Also, I find that when you visit the great sites all over Britain, they've got this just this sort of gentle, compassionate approach to teaching, and it's sort of kid-friendly, and it's also um, grandpa-and-grandma-friendly. And be sure when you get to these sites that you browse through the associated bookstores and the gift shops, and they've always got wonderful you know, little guidebooks that are easy to follow and big print and kind of introduce the context to you of, of whatever site you're visiting. And they've also got comfortable little theaters where you can sit and get a video overview it's family-friendly, and I think that works if you're traveling with kids or if you're traveling with senior citizens that need to take things a little easy. Oh, that sounds good. I'm trying my best to remember to plan in rest days for her. Yeah, well, that's important for all of us. I think I'm, I find myself marveling at the wisdom of God to say you should rest every seven days when I'm traveling in Europe. I have a, t- a hard time putting on the brakes, but I think that's a very good idea. And when you find yourself in a small town, the first night you're getting uh, oriented and the second night you're considered a local. You know the lay of the land, and if you go back to the same pub, they'll treat you like an old friend. That sounds wonderful. I think she's going to... Yeah. Have the trip of a lifetime. I, I would say just get out there and meet people and um, breathe that fresh air. And uh, remember, in, in England, they say there's uh, no bad weather, just inappropriate clothing. So be prepared for the weather and, and don't wait for the weather to break and be good. Just bundle up and get out there because they can get seven different weather situations in a single day. I've warned her it is not going to be warm. So be <laughs> prepared for that at least. <laughs> good for you. Have a great time. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. You can reach us by email. The address is radio at ricksteves.com. If cities can get makeovers, then Bilbao in Spain has had a great one. It's now an important center for all of Basque culture. Since the much-acclaimed Guggenheim Museum opened there in October 1997, the spiffed-up city has become a popular place to visit. We're exploring the Basque country with a native-born tour guide up next on Travel with Rick Steves. While the most popular European destinations for Americans are often the big countries like the UK, France, Germany, and Italy, don't neglect the smaller ethnic regions. I find these interesting because they're made up of proud people whose number one allegiance is to their region or ethnic identity. One of the most compelling of these nations without a state, as they like to call themselves, is nestled in the corner of Europe where the Atlantic, Spain, and France all come together. Basque country is a spirited land where locals have struggled for independence for centuries. Separatist groups have left a bloody trail in the long and complicated Basque struggle for autonomy. But in recent years, Madrid has relented, giving the Basques more autonomy and easing the tension in the region. Joining us now to help explore the Basque country from an insider's perspective is native-born guide Francisco Galaria. He comes to us from Pamplona. Francisco, thanks for being with us. Hello, Rick. It's a great pleasure being here with you today. So when I, I talk about Basque people, I think that it's a state, but it's it's not really a state. What is the mindset of Basque people? Well, the Basque country is uh, a region. It's in the north of Spain. And it's not just a geographical region. It's a cultural region because it takes what today is known as the Basque country, Navarra, and the French Basque country. All of that land, there's a big, beautiful, ancient culture that it's incredible to discover, and it's a great pleasure to be there and discover uh, the light, the food, the music, everything. It's uh, so shocking for people because people relate 
to Spain to flamenco and everything. And the North is not that. It's other type of thing. It's Basque music, Basque everything. Now, in this day and age, in globalization and so on, you almost have to be big to survive in a business or as a country. How is the nationality or the, the people, the culture of Basque doing with all of this aggressiveness? Well, when you have all the world against you, what do you do? You go small and you try to do all the way from the bottom. Uh, the Basque culture starts in the family. You are Basque because you are Basque, because you breathe Basque, because you are what you are. You, it's very difficult to learn how to be like this. It's a, a way of being. And when you go back to the roots, when you go back to basics, that's what you get. You get yourself, you get your culture, which is what you breathe. So globalization, of course, it changed, and you have all the Basque people tweeting and Facebooking, but they Facebook in Basque. But I noticed in Basque country, for a lot of people, rather than having their uh, URL end with ES for España, they don't want to have ES on their URL, so they will go .com. Well, that is a political question, it's, uh, because part of the Basque country, they want to separate. They want to be a separate country out of, uh, of Spain. But today it's not very logical to be out of Spain because we're inside of Europe. So, And Europe is a big nation now. We're beginning to have identity as a big country with little states, and inside of those states, little smaller states, which is the Basque country. I had this hunch that people from different parts of Europe are seeing themselves more as European. In the last uh, generation, has that changed? Yes, I think that especially the new kids, they all know that they're European. But, for example, here in the United States, you're all American, which for us in Europe is so shocking. You can be from Seattle, you can be from Texas, you can be from New York, and when you see your flag, your national flag, it's wow. That's what we're beginning to have. Now you see the blue flag with the stars, you feel European. But that doesn't make you less Spanish or less uh, Basque. You don't have to take one part of you out to be a bigger nation. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And we're speaking with Francisco Glaria about Basque country. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Lisa's on the phone from Arroyo Grande, California. Lisa, thanks for your call. Hi, thanks for having me. I am very interested in traveling to Spain. I've been to Europe once before, and I'm planning another trip soon. And I'm not really familiar with the Basque region, so I was kind of curious as to how it... I haven't been to any of Spain, but how is it different from the rest of Spain? And it sounds like the the language is a little different there as well. Well, hello, Lisa. This is Francisco. Uh, the language is not a little bit different. It's completely different. If you try to talk with Basque, you will not. <laughs> uh, sorry, I will try to be gentle, but it is like that. I personally don't speak Basque. I understand it, but uh, it's very, very, very difficult language. But don't worry. If you go to the Basque country in Spain, everybody speaks Spanish, and most of the people speak English. So you will be comfortable back there. But what's a good Basque word to know if you're traveling in Basque country? Well, the best word... Caixo, that means hello. Caixo. <laughs> Caixo. And agur, which is goodbye. Those how, are the two basics. How do you say goodbye again? Agur. A-J-U-R. Agur. Agur. And caixo. There you go, Lisa. Wow, that is very different. <laughs> <laughs> now, if Lisa's got a five days in Basque Country, what are the major stops that she should be targeting? Well, first, uh, I think she has to go to San Sebastian. I think San Sebastian is the most beautiful city. It has the Concha, which is the beach. It's a... Uh, a royal city, you have palaces, and it's gorgeous. If you like food, it's the place. You can go from tapas, which is typical Spanish food. We call them up there pinchos. That is cheap and easy for you to get. Or you can go all the way up to the big Michelin star restaurants, where we have many of them. Uh, so San Sebastian is one great place. Another place has to be Bilbao. It was one of the ugliest cities in Spain. But suddenly, the magic of Guggenheim Museum, Frank Gehry's incredible museum, put a spark in the city and has changed. Now you have Bilbao as a beautiful city, modern, and with a shocking museum. And then you have to go to the French border. You have to go to Biarritz and to San Juan de Luz, which is two of the most beautiful cities in so, the south. So that would be like an hour north from San Sebastian. You'd get to San Juan de Luz. Mm-hmm. It's a cute little beach town. Yeah, it's a fisherman's town. It's a beach town. You have an incredibly beautiful church in there. And it's the place to buy a barrette. Barrettes are the Basque hat. Well, the, the little French yep. beret. It's a, it's a Basque and beret, huh? The French barrette is Basque. So the best place to get it is in Saint-Jean-de-Luz. So that would be your souvenir, Lisa. Oh, that's 
That sounds terrific. Yeah, I, I'm definitely scheduling the Basque area for my next trip to Europe. If you're interested in, in delving into the sort of the soul of Basque heritage and culture, what city is sort of the, the historic capital of the people? Uh, or is there one? Is there one? I think if you have time and you could rent a car, I recommend you to drive through the small, you know, don't go on highways. Try to go to the narrow street, you know, to the narrow roads and discover the tiny little villages. That is the magic of the Basque country, the people, how they look, you know. They're very shy, very... If you try to talk with people, people will be very nice, but they will not approach you at the first one. So if you go to little places like saint jean de luz in France, but you have uh, Guernica, which is the soul of the culture of uh, the government in the Basque country. Well, Guernica is famous for the the oak tree where the people would come together like mythically in the yeah. misty ancient prehistoric time or something. Well, the Basque culture, the root is nature. We love nature and nature is... And we, we had witches back there back in time and all of these witches, they worship nature. So for us, when you are the president of the Basque country, when he gets his uh, title, he has to say, you know, he has to be good in front of a tree, and which is in Guernica. Guernica, it's a pity that everybody knows Guernica because of the bombing, the terrible bombing of uh, the right. Second World War. 1939 yeah. or something, mm-hmm. Hitler used Guernica as yeah. sort of practice for his yeah. airplanes that can now drop yeah. bombs. Uh, Spain didn't go in the Second World War, but Franco got pretty well along with Hitler. And he said, OK, if you need a place to train your bombing, go to Guernica. And after that, Pablo Picasso made that incredible painting, which is a legacy to the world. Guernica. Yeah. Yeah, you can see that in Madrid. Yeah, at the Prado Museum. Lisa, does that give you some ideas? Oh, definitely. Yes, definitely. It sounds just all so very interesting and different. Now, remember, caicho is hello, but a very important word that Francisco was talking about is pinchos, right? You don't don't say tapas, because, of course, when you go to Spain, you're going to eat a lot of beautiful tapas. But the best tapas in all of Spain... I think you can fairly say. Is San Sebastian. In San Sebastian. <laughs> I mean, those counters full of pinchos. Oh, talk will about blow it. your mind away. <laughs> Take me, Lisa and me there, Francisco. What, what's the tapa we would eat? What's the, uh, what well, would melt in your mouth? The, the big problem is that you will not be able to eat one. Trust <laughs> me. <laughs> you have all of those counters and you just go there and you ask for a plate and you start getting it. And the waiter count them, and he, they'll count them, and they'll keep track of how many you eat, and that's it. Enjoy everything, everything related with fish. You have the coast right there, but also vegetables are incredible in the Basque country. You have peppers, you have all the gastronomy. It's incredible, and it's all fresh, and it's extremely beautifully presented. So you'll enjoy it. Explain to us about the little, the cheese and the walnuts and the apple jam. <laughs> what was the... It's membrillo, dulce de membrillo. As I told you before, we are mountains and we have cows and we have goats. So we have cheese. And we are in the border with France. And French people, they really know how to make cheese. But in the Basque culture, we also know how to make cheese. So with all of these shepherds, they made all of these very good cheeses that you eat with uh, an apple. Well, it's dulce de membrillo, which is like a queen's. It's a very sweet. And you eat it with walnut. Everything given by nature again. Nice. Tasty. Lisa, you're going to gain weight in Basque country. Well, that's part of going on vacation. That's right. One concern I have for people like Lisa who are dreaming about going to Basque Country is, is there any reason to be concerned about safety? Because we've heard of the terrorism and the uh, violent separatist group, the ETA. Well, ETA, uh, it was. I'm so happy to say it was. An armed part of uh, the separatists who were killing people just to get uh, the Basque Country separated from Spain. I'm so happy to say that in 2011, this ETA uh, movement, they have decided to put all the weapons down and there's not going to be any more terrorist attacks up there. Francisco, if I was sympathetic with the ETA and really would do violence in the interest of Basque independence, can you make a case that things have changed in the last few years where some of my complaints would be satisfied? Well, politically, yes, because, uh, of course, they're not going to move out of Spain, but... People uh, can raise their children with their language. Yes. I that's, mean, that's a fundamental complaint, it is. isn't it? Uh, in Franco's that, time, you couldn't do that. That's it. Franco was the, the bad thing for the Basque country because he abolished all of these little cultures. But it was impossible to abolish the Basque culture in, in the Basque country because we all do it at home. So at home, I mean, in a school, okay, gone. In, uh, in the streets, gone. But at home, you have it. 
So uh, now you can make it public and you can be basked in public, which is great. Lisa, thanks for your call. Thank you so much. Happy travels. And Dorothy from Fanwood, New Jersey, emails us, and Dorothy asks, a cruise I'll be taking will stop in Bilbao for a day. How do you recommend I spend the 10 hours I have on shore in Bilbao to enjoy the Basque culture? Okay, the Basque culture. What a wonderful place to have a day, huh? (laughs) Well, Bilbao, yeah. Bilbao, it can be one of the high peaks of of the Basque country. Well, it is. Uh, You have to go to Bilbao downtown, so get from the ferry all the way downtown as fast as you can, so you don't waste any time. When you go downtown, you go to the Siete Calles, which is seven streets. Seven streets of pinchos and families and all the grandpas stay in the streets and talking and having a little drink. Seven streets, it's called. Yeah. That's the old center. Mm-hmm. The old center with the seven streets. But now my understanding, Bilbao was sort of a gritty, rundown, industrial, rust belt kind of part of Spain. It was the ugliest city in Spain. And I say it was because now... They realized that ugly cities are not good to live, so they decided to clean the face of the city, and finally they have made one of the most beautiful cities. And the heart of the city is Guggenheim Museum, which is the other place you should not lose. The Guggenheim Museum, it's been there for about 10 years. It's full of modern art, but the building itself, to me, is just mind-blowing. Frank Getty, who was the architect, he made the most beautiful building ever. It has a shape of a fish or a boat. It's incredible. I mean, the technique and the beauty of it, it's breathtaking. Now the city is becoming a very modern city. You have some incredible buildings, but at the same time, you can see all the old buildings. So you have modernity, you have... You Infrastructure. Have, yeah. You the, have the subway. You a wonderful a, subway. Yeah, the subway was designed by Norman Foster, Sir Norman Foster. So it's another architectural piece of the city. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Basque country with Francisco Glaria. Hey, Francisco, you were talking about how you would feel the pulse of Basque culture by going into the hills and finding these little villages. If you were to drop in with a balloon to little villages all over Europe, and then suddenly you came to a little village in Basque country, visually, how would you know it was, it was a Basque village? What would you see? You're going to see green, 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 green land everywhere. You're going to see little houses spread around the mountains, which are called the caserios. Those are the family houses. You can see a lot of cows, <laughs> cows and goats. And one thing that shocks people is you're going to find peppers hanging all over the windows. All of those red peppers that you sun-dry them. Sun-dried peppers. Yeah. Beautiful. Delicious. <laughs> uh, you're going to see them and <laughs> you will know that you're in the Basque country. Just if you see the sandpapers. And one thing I remember, very striking, which I saw nowhere else, big athletic courts. Highlight. Oh, the highlight, yeah. Because normally, in the rest of you, you'd have a peaceful little square. Instead of a peaceful square in a Basque village, you've got this, it's like a big, like half a ping-pong table with a big wall that you bounce the balls <laughs> off of, but people running around on the court, and, and it's noisy, and everybody loves it. It is. The Basque sports are very basic, let's put it that way. So once the highlight highlights uh, the handball, and you can play handball, you can play with a wooden uh, like scoop, yeah, scoop, yeah, and other sports that we can do up there. We weight lift uh, stones and we cut trees with access. So it's like very pure and very lumberjacks. Yeah, this is like so lifting big stones, cutting yeah. trees, and whipping this ball with those scoops. It's a fast sport. I I just thought I was glad I was behind a. A, a, glass. A, glass, a glass wall of protection. <laughs> it is. It's very fast. It's thrilling. And, uh, well, for us, the people who win these tournaments, they are heroes in the state. You know, it's, uh, for us, it's like, wow, number ones. Really? So you know the famous highlight people? Yes. Titin. Titin is one Titin, of the... Titin, the Babe Ruth of highlight. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he is the best one. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been getting an insight into Basque Country. Francisco, if you were to take me to one experience where you just most vividly feel the pride and the spirit of Basque people, finish our interview by taking me there. The Basque Country, you know, it's divided in two parts. You can go to the sea or you can go inland. If you go to the sea, you have to go to a fisherman's place, you know, to the market maybe. 
when all the boats come and you have all the fishes up there and they're selling them and it's noisy and it's you have to be on a side because they will run over you but that is a very basque way you know they're doing what they're doing and when you're working you're working that if you go to the coast if you go inside it's more relaxed it's more quiet it's more like a private moment you have to breathe the air uh, there's an artist called Chigida and he said that the air in the Basque country it's black we have the black air it is a different it's cloudy but it's not just basic cloud it's something you have to feel which is incredible black air yeah what do you mean by black it would dirty? you go dirty no, air? no 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 it's it's not dirt it's not smoke or anything like that it's a feeling of you know it's tranquility oh still air it's still it's, it's still like, as the black of night yeah but although it's daylight there's something that surrounds you that it goes around you that makes you like hi so comfortable and so relaxed that's what just, i want to experience i'm going to go to the inland and look for that tranquility that basque peace you're more than welcome francisco glaria thank you very much it's been a pleasure how do you say happy travels in basque oh, happy bon voyage i uh, know you say agur agur <laughs> agur agur we don't talk much it's like agur <laughs> Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks for web help to Kate Mulhern-Graham and to Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can join us as a caller during a recording session for our next set of radio interviews or chat with Rick in an open phone segment. Go to the radio section of ricksteves.com, include your email address in the link on the right-hand side of the page, and we'll notify you of the dates and topics of our next recording sessions for Travel with Rick Steves. Our website is also where you can listen again to this week's show, search our radio archives by air date or by topics, and find out when different radio stations web stream the show. That's all on the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.